Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, uh, grateful people. We have your word. Uh, we have your instructions to us. We pray that we would benefit from your word this morning. Uh, your testimonies are true and trustworthy, reviving the soul, and we pray that we would benefit, that we'd have hearts that would be ready to benefit from your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn to Matthew 28. So Matthew 28. Um, typically, I, when I have the opportunity to preach, I preach from a psalm. This will be a little bit different. Um, so turn to Matthew 28. I will be preaching from the ESV. It's a little different than what we did in the scripture reading, just so you're aware of that. Think of all the people God used, has used, continues to use um, from the time of conversion to all the Christian growth that you have experienced. Think of the different means God has used to cause you to grow. Uh, we know he uses his word, right? I mean, scripture is very clear about that. Uh, his, his word is the means uh, by the power of the spirit in which we are uh, converted, become Christians, and then grow, right? That's, that's pretty clear in the scripture. Uh, think of all the people that have ministered the word to you. Uh, the, the, you know, uh, Romans 10 talks about the, the word has to be preached. We have to hear it. Um, there's constant reminders of speaking the word to one another as Christians. Think of all the people that knew his word well, that knew you well, that have poured in to your life to cause you to grow. Uh, I would venture to say that anyone who is a mature Christian, um, a, well, I kind of like we read about in Ephesians, right? A mature, uh, maturing to full, the full manhood of Christ, right? And that's true for men and women. I know it's kind of weird to use that manhood language, but that's the reality. We are growing up into Christ. Um, that anyone who's in that category of mature can think of at least several people that have, have ministered the word to them. Not only through public preaching, but even personally ministered the word to them. And so we ought to thank God for that. And, in all these, and the reason is because in all these things, God is the one who's at work. 1 Corinthians 3, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read a couple verses. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So what I'm saying is, God gets the glory for all the Christian growth you've experienced. We all know that. Nevertheless, he's done this work through his workers, right? Through other people wielding his word. Uh, and even your own personal reading. I don't mean to downplay that either. Your own personal reading of the word, certainly. And he's, this is what he, we read in the next verse. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. You see that? His labor. There are those who have labored with the word. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. You belong to God, God's the one doing the work. He will, in fact, do the work in our lives, but he uses individuals ministering his word. Um, well, the, the elders desire to foster a church culture in which it's normal for every believer to engage in this type of ministry to one another, right? I mean, it's going to look different for different people, different seasons of life, certainly. All that is true, but we desire to have a culture where this is very normal in the church. So what we're talking about today is going to be the issue of discipleship, and this is uh, when I did my, just finished up that doctoral project I was working on, that's what the topic was. It was on fostering interpersonal discipleship. Uh, so how do we foster that? And so some of this, this week and next week, I'll be presenting some of the things as I studied the scriptures, uh, thinking about the topic of discipling and discipleship. My, my desire is to share some of that with you uh, in hopes of encouraging you really to excel still more. I don't think this is something that isn't happening in the church, but to excel more, right? We, we can grow in this as we can in other areas of the Christian life. Uh, because this is how the Lord builds up his church. And that's what I want to show you today. Through the word of God, through the people of God ministering to one another. 
And uh, that's kind of what we see when we look at discipling. So today's sermon is a topical study. It's going to be a bit different. Like I said, normally when I preach, I've, I've generally been picking a psalm and just preaching straight through that. Um, I think the, the normal diet of the church on a Sunday morning during the Sunday gatherings is, should normally be to pick a book of the Bible, right? Go through it um, section by section, verse by verse. Uh, I mean, that's, think about how many, that's good in a lot of ways, right? Number one, you're going through the Bible. You're not just taking one verse and springboarding into something else, which can be more easily done, I think, with just if everything is topical. I'm not saying, obviously, I'm not telling you topical is bad. I'm doing that this morning, right? So, um, but I, I think that's important. Um, and you end up getting the whole counsel of God, right? It could be easy as a pastor to just preach on the things that um, I find enjoyable to preach on. I find easy to preach on, right? Or I think you need to hear as if I know everything you need to hear, right? Uh, no, we need to hear the Word of God, and going verse by verse helps us do that. Uh, but there's also a benefit in looking at topical things, and so that's what we're going to do because we want to hear what God's Word says on these things. And so when we do topical, what we're looking at is we want to kind of do a more systematic look at it. We want to pull together several different Bible verses, put them together on a topic, and say, ask questions of the passages, say, what do we learn from this, and how does this apply? And so that's what we're going to do. In, in all this, the goal is still that the Word of God is the center. Because uh, we, we don't want to just take something, springboard into whatever we want to talk about, uh, regardless of what the Bible says. That's not our goal. So today, the goal is to answer two main questions from the Bible about the issue of discipling. Number one, what is discipling? When you think about what is discipling, and associated with that, we're going to ask the question, what is discipleship? So I'm sneaking in another question there, um, but it's part of answering the issue of what is discipling. So we're going to look at that. We're going to primarily be in Matthew 28 and the Gospels as we look at that. Second, who is responsible for discipling the church? And we're going to find that in Matthew 28 and Ephesians 4. And I'm also going to sneak in another question there too, so just pay attention for that. Um, I, and I'm going to give the answer to that second one right now. Because I think if I don't, and, you, and if, you, if you've come with what I, I don't think is necessarily the biblical view, um, you may tune out all of that I'm saying at the beginning, right? Because you might think, well, yeah, discipling, that's something pastors do. Check, I'm done, right? So my answer to that question is going to be no, that's not something just pastors do, okay? I'm going to try to prove that to you from the scripture. Uh, so if that's new to you, just hold on and we'll get to it. But don't tune out, okay? Because this first part will apply to you. All right, good. All right, so let's go into Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, he's talking to his disciples here, if you look back at verse 16, his closest disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let me give you a quick overview and context here. He is this is the resurrected Jesus. He's been raised from the dead at this point. He is talking to his closest disciples. I think you see that back in verse 16. Um, and the passage is structured like a sandwich. Um, so sorry if you're getting hungry, but it is structured like a sandwich. The, the middle, the meat here, the, the middle of it is his command or his commission. You probably are very familiar with this if you have been to a church um, for probably more than like a year or so, right? You probably hear this at some point. And so that command, that commission is verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then he talks about baptizing them and teaching them. Uh, the main command then is to make disciples. The other verbs, which are all participles, um, that, that first verb is the only command verb, explicitly command verb, which is why I say it's the central point, make, all, make disciples. The other ones support that main verb and tell us kind of what that looks like, going, baptizing, teaching, okay? 
Um, on each side of the meat in this sandwich, on each side, the, the, the pieces of bread are the reasons and the encouragement to do that work of making disciples. Okay, the reasons and encouragement. Look at verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So this is Jesus saying all authority belongs to him. Second part of verse 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we have Jesus' authority, which carries with it his power, right? So his authority is one of the reasons we engage in this work. And the fact that he's with his people. He doesn't just say, hey, go out there, hope it all works out for you. I mean, think about how terrifying that would be. I mean, this passage got a lot of play in the early modern missions movement, right? So you have William Carey and these other guys talking about going to these heathens where, where uh, I mean, there are islands where they are literally eating people, and they're talking about going and taking the gospel to these different places. Um, man, Jesus is with you. He's not just sending you there, like, unaware of what's going on. And he's not just sending you there simply aware. He's sending you and going with you. So you find a lot of encouragement in this, and it's not just evangelism, and that's what I'm going to get to in a minute here, because our focus is not going to be on the evangelistic component, but that's certainly there. Um, but, you know, I think this is encouraging to have this empowering presence and power of Christ, because the work is daunting when you think about it. Even Christian growth, think about how daunting that is. Teaching disciples all that Jesus commanded, that's daunting, because it's not just an intellectual pursuit, as daunting as that is. I mean, look how big the Bible is. That's intellectually daunting, but now we're talking about you're dealing with people. You're a sinner, they're a sinner. I mean, this is impossible, humanly speaking. So, so um, it's interesting, you know, and Paul in 2 Corinthians, he asks at one point, he says, who is sufficient for gospel ministry? And you know, it's interesting, his answer is not actually no one. I think sometimes we hear that and we think, who is sufficient for this? And we think, well, the answer is no one. That's not his answer, because if it was, he wouldn't be on the mission field. He wouldn't be ministering to churches. His answer, if you, if you kind of read and, and infer from what he says next, his answer is, with the Lord we are. That's incredible and encouraging. And so I think that's what we see happening in this promise of um, making disciples. And so this helps us avoid two ditches. One ditch, um, and, and these will derail you from um, the work of discipling, making disciples. One ditch is self-reliance and pride, that, that form of pride. We can do this. That will derail it all the time. You'll get all caught up in trying to make everybody look like you instead of Jesus, for one thing. That's not going to work out well. Um, and it's all about you. The whole point of this is to make much of God. God is not going not to ultimately bless that form of ministry. Uh, the other ditch is another form of pride, and it's self-pity. Woe is me. I'm so weak. I'm so messed up. I can't participate at all in making disciples. Right? Well, if you're walking with the Lord, He's with you. Right? You're trusting in Him. He's with you. And so we, we find that we won't get derailed if we remember these promises. Okay, but what is discipling? That's what we're trying to answer. What is discipling? Before we answer that, and this is where I'm sneaking in my other question, before we answer that, we need to ask the question, what is a disciple, right? Because if we're going to make disciples, right, that's, that's the act, action we're engaging in, you have to know what a disciple is, right? I mean, if someone was like, you know, hey, I want you to make computers, and you had no idea what a computer is, that's not going to work very well, right? You've got to know what you're talking about. So what is a disciple? Um, I want you to hold your hand in, Ma in Matthew 28 or put a bookmark or something in there um, and turn to Luke 9. We're going to look a little bit at Luke 9. And um, this is just going to serve as a sample for things we see in the Gospels because I think in the Gospels, we see Jesus is making disciples, right? And so if we're going to look and see what a disciple is, we should look to the Gospels and see what do disciples of Jesus look like. 
I think we can summarize the gospel's teaching under two main points when we talk about what is a disciple. Number one, a disciple responds to the gospel, and here's the key part, believing Jesus is the Savior God sent. So disciple number one is believing Jesus is, is the one, the Savior, that God sent. That is what a disciple is. That is fundamental to what it means to be a disciple in the gospels. It is somebody that believes Jesus is the Savior God sent. Second, a disciple is one who follows Jesus, and here's the key, obeying what he commands. We see that a disciple is about following, clinging to, obeying Jesus. Okay? So trusting, believing, and obeying. First, let's look at both these. First, a disciple is one who responds to the gospel. They believe Jesus is the Savior. Okay, let's talk real quick about the word gospel. The word gospel means good news, doesn't it? And it is the good news of God what God has done to reconcile sinners to himself. So, so the, the, the picture the Bible gives us is we are rebels against God. We are going our own way. We do not want God. We are unable to please God, and we are unwilling to please God. We basically said, God, take a hike. We do that in religious ways, by the way, too. Just because someone grew up in a church, they can be very religious, and yet they're not really believing in the one true God. Right? I see it with the Pharisees in the Gospels. So, it's about how we can be brought into a relationship of salvation, which brings joy and peace in relating to God. It's us turning away, being turned away from our own kingdom, pursuing our own kingdom to the kingdom of God. That's, that's what we're talking about here. So, the first mark of a disciple, if we're going to do that, is we've got to know the king. So, so, the first thing that happens is, is a mark of, um, or one of the first things we talk about is a, a disciple is marked by knowing Jesus and who he is, his person and his work. His person, look at verse... Uh, uh, 18 of Luke 9. Luke 9, 18 through 20. Now it happened that he was praying alone and the disciples were with him. So there's, his disciples are with him. What, so what do these disciples look like? He asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. So these are, these are pretty high marks, okay? They're not saying like you're a nobody, right? These are, in Judaism, these are, these are pretty big deals. Now, Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ, the Son of God. So the issue of identity, the who is this Jesus, the answer is the Christ. Now, the Christ is just another way of saying the one that God sent, anointed, declared, sent as his king and as the Savior that he had promised from long ago. Throughout the whole Bible, he is promising there is a Savior. There is one I'm going to send. We see little pictures of what that's going to look like with others who are anointed in the Old Testament. They're not the ultimate Savior, but they're little foreshadows, foretastes of that, right? We see it with David. Oh, he's going to be a king like David is a king, right? We see prophets um, like Moses foreshadowing that. So Jesus comes as the Christ, the Savior and the King that was promised from long ago. And notice it's not just a mental assent to the fact that, oh, this, yes, I believe you are mentally, I affirm, check, you're the Savior. There is a believing going on here because they, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? There is a personal belief here that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Um, and as Christ, what is the mission that he came to do? Look at Luke 9, 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So, what did he come to do? What's the work of the Christ? Well, it is to die and be raised. Um, and when we talk about dying, he's dying as a sacrifice. We know that very clearly from other passages. Um, in John 1, we read that John the Baptist is standing there. He's got two disciples with him. He sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. 
Lamb of God carries all the freight of the Old Testament sacrificial system, doesn't it? The reminder is sacrifice to make atonement for sin, to make you right with God. Because God's wrath hangs over you, there must be a satisfaction of that wrath. If God is just, he must punish sin. So Jesus is the Lamb of God. A true disciple responds by believing that. The next verse that I just quoted from John 1, in verse 37, these disciples heard him say this. They heard John the Baptist say this, and what do they do? They followed Jesus. So they're trusting in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done as the Savior. So the first component is a trusting in who Jesus is and what he has done. And and by the way, a a true disciple continues to do this um, because they recognize, where else am I going to go? So in John 6, uh, Peter, Jesus has said some hard stuff about who he is and what he came to do. Things that just like level your pride. You're not king. You can't do anything to save yourself. I mean, all these things just level our pride. They are hard things to hear. And so some, some of these kind of pseudo-disciples, these people who are just kind of following around for a free meal, they leave, and, and he says, well, you know, uh, well, are you guys going to leave too? And Simon, Simon's answer, Peter's answer, is, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So a disciple continues in this belief, in this trusting, even when Jesus says hard things. And if you're a Christian and you're um, reading the Bible, you know, you're going to find things that are hard in, for you to take. Yours might be different than mine. But as long as we're on this side of heaven, there are certain things in there that they're hard for me to hear because I'm prideful. I'm sinful. I'm continually repenting. But a disciple continually wants to follow Jesus. So that brings us to the second characteristic here, and that's the obeying his commands. There's a trusting, but there's also an obeying. A a follower of Jesus is not like a follower of someone on social media, where you just check in every now and then to hear, did they say something interesting? Did they say something crazy? Right? Did uh, they just check? Or did they say something inspirational? I mean, some people treat treat Jesus that way, right? They only want to quote some inspirational stuff, and they don't want to think about all the hard stuff he said. No, we obey what he said. We want to hear what he said. We're following him because following him involves dying to self as king. I'm relinquishing the rights to the throne, which by the way, it was all an illusion anyway. I really am not, I'm not going to be a lasting king here, right? But I like to think that I am. And it still takes humility to get off that makeshift throne that I've constructed and humble myself and die to self as king. I'm the one calling the shots. You have to die to that. And so that's what happens here. We have a dying to that to follow Jesus. Look at Luke 9, 23. So you should already be in Luke 9, hopefully. Verse 23, and he said to, uh, to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, which is an instrument of death, and follow me. Later in Luke 14, verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you're a disciple, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus without dying to yourself. Now, you're, if you're a Christian in here, let me just say this. I understand that this is a daily thing for you. Right? You might think, well, I died. Why am I not perfect? Okay, well, you're constantly dying this side of heaven. But by God's grace, you continue in that. So we also see this obedience component in the word disciple itself, uh, because the word disciple is a learner, but it's more than what we think of as a learner. I think we, we think of a learner as merely transfer of information. I'm a learner if I just sit in your classroom and you transfer some basic information. I, I sit on a Zoom call and you transfer information into my mind. 
right? I read a book and I get information. That's not what we're talking about here. It means more than that. It's more than a mere pragmatic transfer of information. The term disciple involves the idea of following and obeying. That's what it meant to be a disciple in Jesus' day. It means gladly submitting to what he says, um, submitting to the pattern of life that he calls us to. Um, and, and think about this. I mean, we become like what we love. So I think this isn't surprising. We love Jesus as our savior and as our good king, benevolent king. He's not a tyrant. He's a good king. And, and so because we love him, we want to be like him. So, so how is it that obedience, I mean, obedience flows from our trusting in him, doesn't it? We want to obey him. Um, it's kind of like, I mean, you know, kids, they are even adults. I mean, they have these, these people they admire and they respect and they want to be like them. Think about kids and sports stars, right? Sometimes, oftentimes wrongly, they want to be just like them. And so they'll try to imitate them, right? Wear the same thing, do the same th- way that they do their thing. But the point is, following Jesus means we're going to want to obey him. So a summary definition, a disciple then is one who believes Jesus is their savior and king and then embarks on a lifelong commitment to be devoted to Jesus. In other words, to obey him. That's what we mean when we talk about a disciple. A couple points of application here. Uh, Christian, where can you grow in the conformity of your life to what Jesus says? Because we just said a disciple is obeying Jesus. So, so, and we could even say growing and trusting him. Where are you struggling to trust him? To trust that he's actually good. You, you say this is bad. I'm, I'm feeling like it's good. Help me believe what you say. And then that flows into the obedience. Help me do what you say, right? Where are you struggling with this? And this is important not only for your own discipleship, your own walk with the Lord, but because it directly affects your ability to disciple others. Our discipling flows out of our own discipleship, right? Our action of discipling others is going to only be as good as our own discipling, walking with the Lord. Now, I mean, I I do understand. I mean, the Lord does work even through, well, he has to work through broken failures like us, right? That's true. But even, I mean, even through the ungodly, the Lord can still do his work. So I'm not trying to say the Lord never disciples us in in helpful ways through others. But I'm saying in terms of your responsibility before the Lord, whether whether what you're doing is lasting fruit or not, um, in a way that that will bring you a well-done, good and faithful servant, your discipleship directly is connected to your discipling work. Now, I don't want you to hear that and think, well, okay, I guess I can't disciple because I, I sin a lot. Now, what, what you should hear is I need to grow a lot and I want to grow a lot. Help me and help me then turn around and disciple others. Kind of like David. I mean, think about David in Psalm 51. After this grievous sin and he's repenting of it and part of what his prayer is, God, forgive me, cleanse me, cause me to walk in your ways so that I can then teach others. Right? You see, even our own repentance is built in this movement towards discipling others if we're a genuine Christian. Because it's all about Christ. It's not about you and your merits. It goes back to what we said earlier. It's not about your own righteousness. Well, we're all receiving discipleship from someone or something. So, so Christian, I encourage you, think about what's shaping your thoughts, your desires, your behaviors. The world is a discipling tool. It tries to disciple. It has its own curriculum. I don't mean that in the sense that I'm some conspiracy theorist and I think they've come up with some grand, but, but it does. I mean, in the, in the sense that Satan's behind it, the world is seeking to mold you. Romans 12 talks about that. And so we need to think about what is discipling us. Is it the word of God and the people of God or is it all these other things, right? We do live in the world. I'm not saying we all become hermits and you know, move out to some island on our own um, because ultimately, yeah, my, my greatest problem is still in me. It's not just the world. But I do have to ask, how is the world discipling me? I need to be discipled by Christ through his word and his people. Um, and I, I'll just point this out one more time. I've already, I want to hear, I'm going to beat this again, okay? It, 
disciples are not perfect, but they're growing and they are repenting and they're following Jesus. They long to follow him. Think about Peter. Peter is a disciple, one of the closest disciples of Jesus. He fails miserably when Jesus is, is standing trial, about to be crucified, right? He denies knowing him. So my point is, we can fail, but, but look at what Peter does. Compare him to Judas. Judas fails tremendously too. Judas feels sorry for himself and goes and hangs himself. Peter is repentant when he's confronted, right? Okay, so not perfectionism, but a genuine desire to grow is so important. Number, number two application, um, maybe you're, you're considering the claims of Christ. Maybe you're not a Christian, you're just considering the claims of Christ, um, counting the cost of following him. Listen, there is a genuine cost to following Christ, but there's genuine gain in following Christ. So look down at Luke 9, verses 24 and 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. It's kind of what I talked about earlier. You feel like you're king, but you're not. If you think you're going to save you being king, you're not. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So yes, he does call you to die, but it's that you might truly live. You might truly live, in fact, the good life. The real, genuine life that is worth living and that will go on forever. Knowing Christ. It's like a person who, who finds um, treasure hidden in a field. And this is a biblical illustration. I'm just going to paraphrase it, right? You, you find treasure in a field. Find out that it's going to cost you your entire life savings to purchase it. But the treasure in this field is infinitely valuable. Do you lose something? Do you give up something to purchase that field? Yes. You'd have to give your whole life savings. You must count it as loss. You must die to self. But do you lose anything? You gain what is infinitely more valuable, right? That's the picture we get of entering the kingdom. Is there a cost? Do you have to count it? Yes. If I am tired of being king of my own life, if I recognize the bankruptcy in that, that that ends in bankruptcy, I may feel like I have everything right now, but it ends in bankruptcy court, then I am willing to give all that up that I might gain Christ and enter into his kingdom. So I would encourage you to think about this, to repent and, and turn away from living for yourself and to bank all your hope on Christ. Bank all your hope on him and his righteousness, his saving power. He's ra- he was raised from the dead. Yeah, he died, but he, just take the punishment for your sin, but he rose from the dead. There is resurrection life in trusting him. He proved that there is value in following him. Well, now we're ready to look at what discipling others entails. You can look back at Matthew 28. Based on what a disciple is, we want to see what it looks like to disciple others. Uh, discipling others, then, essentially is helping others trust and obey Jesus, isn't it? I think based on the definition we've seen, if I'm going to make disciples, it's basically helping others trust and obey Jesus. God's word as well. I mean, he spoke to us in his word. So the main command is to make disciples. That's what we're talking about here. And, um, and let's look at the, the way that this gets worked out here in these verses. Look at verse 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So making disciples is the main verb, and we've defined that as helping others trust and follow Jesus. Now, what's entailed in that? Going. Uh, now, this is, going is probably actually, all three of these words are, you don't really care about this, but they're participles, and that's how we know they're not the main point. They're supporting the main point, which is make disciples. Okay, 
It's all you need to know. Main point, make disciples. Um, Going is kind of in a little bit of its own category too in that it's kind of probably more just talking about the situation in which we do this. As you go is probably what we're talking about here. Now, we rightly do interpret this to mean missions, but you got to go to do missions work. But I think when we hear going, we can overinterpret that to hear it as, well, this is only for those who are going. And when we say going, we mean they're actually going far away. But I think really what we're talking about is as you go, which yes, for some people, that is you will go overseas. You will go to another culture, right? Um, but for all of us, we are going throughout our daily lives. We are up and going. You are going to school. You are going to work. You are going around your house dealing with unbelieving children or unbelieving family members, right? There is a going everywhere. So the point, I, I think, there is probably not so much exactly in a what we're doing because you're already going. I think the point is just, hey, as you're going, this is what you're doing to make disciples, okay? The other two, number one, is baptizing. So baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is essentially evangelizing all sorts of people, people from all nations. All sorts of people need to be evangelized. And the reason I say evangelize, even though the word there is baptize, we have to think about what does baptize mean? Well, it, the, literally, the word just means to immerse, Okay, and here we're talking about immerse in water. Um, the idea is immerse in water, um, which is uh, specifically here a public declaration that someone is, hey, I'm declaring that I, and not only I, but the, the Christians are, are agreeing that they see this is true in my life, that I'm believing Jesus is the Savior and King, and I'm ready and willing and I am obeying him. In other words, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Well, th- so what this is, this is the entry point of Christianity. Not so much the fact that like right when you get wet, this is the outward picture of that entry point that you experience spiritually when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved. So when we talk about baptizing, we're talking about evangelism. When we say, what does it mean to make disciples in baptizing them? Well, it means you're sharing the gospel so that they come to a point where they make a public declaration of I'm following Jesus. That's what we're talking about. Uh, the next point, and this is the one we're going to focus our time on the rest of the sermon and then the next sermon, is making disciples, or we might say discipling, entails teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And this deals with uh, everything from a new convert all the way up to a about to enter into glory Christian. Okay? Um, it corresponds to the obedience aspect. Right? Kind of like the, the other one we talked about um, uh, trusting Jesus, that was kind of that evangelism side. Now we're seeing this really corresponds to the obedience side, doesn't it? Teach them to obey everything that I command you. Um, that, that teaching them, the, this idea of um, observe, your text might say observe, is the idea of persist in obedience. You're going to grab onto it, you're going to keep it, and you're going you're to persist in obedience. That's what it means. Um, so the goal is not just about knowing about Jesus, but becoming more like him. So we summarize again, discipling is helping others follow Jesus. It's helping others follow Jesus. Evangelism is a key part of that. Um, that could be a whole sermon series in and of itself, and, and it should be. Uh, that's not what I'm doing. Th- this is focusing, because my project was fo- more focused on this, and this, the focus is now, okay, how do we help Christians within the body grow in keeping all that he's commanded? Following Jesus, obeying Jesus, growing in Christ-likeness, right? That's what we're talking about. So uh, now we're ready for our second question. Who is responsible for discipling in the church? Within the church, who is responsible for discipling? Turn, uh, well, actually stay in Matthew 28. We're going to look at one more thing here. Another way of asking this question is, does being a disciple require that you engage in making disciples? If you are a disciple, 
is part of what that means that you will also make other disciples. And we could talk both in the evangelism side, but again, here in the helping others keep all that Christ commands. Does it include that? Well, if we look at Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus gives this command to make disciples. Does that just apply to the original disciples? And the answer is no. Look at verse 20. Jesus says they are to teach, part of what they do as they make disciples is they are to teach them to observe everything except for one thing that I commanded you. Is that what it says? When you, you make disciples and you teach them to do everything that I command you except for make disciples because they're not responsible to make disciples. That's just the role of the initial apostles or it's just the role of the pastors. Is that what he says? You teach them all that I commanded you. He like literally, not like, he literally just commanded you to make disciples. Do you think that's included in what they're supposed to do? Yes, it is. Make disciples. Discipling is intrinsic to being a disciple. That's what I'm saying. If you are a disciple, it's intrinsic to part of your following Christ that you will engage in the work of making disciples. Now, that looks different for all of us. I get that. I'm not saying all that means. Again, if you think this only applies to oversee missions, that, that's not the only thing it applies to. It applies to all of us somehow. Uh, the, the other thing I'd point out here is the second half of verse 20 when he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How long does that promise last? Till the end of the apostolic age, when the apostles all die off? To the end of the age. So, as long as he gives you this promise, would it not make sense that as long as the promise is lasting, so too is the command? Right? In other words, he gives you this promise, he says, all the way to the end of the age, and part of that is to undergird the command, make disciples. Doesn't it make sense that the command fits with the promise? So I think this, we're seeing here, even in Matthew 28, that this applies beyond just this initial generation. It applies to all Christians. Now, you might still be thinking, though, because this has been entrenched in a lot of um, churches, I think, and possibly even to some degree, and it could happen in a church like ours where you have, I think, um, healthy pastoral ministry. It can be easy to think, well, yeah, the pastors do all that. They do all the, that work of the ministry and, and making disciples, right? Now, I'm just responsible to be discipled. So the question is, is this just for pastors? Well, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to give you a little context here. Um, in Ephesians 3, so right before this, Paul has been talking about the church, and he's going to keep doing that in chapter 4. He talks about how the, dem the church is a demonstration of God's wisdom and power. And we can't get into, I mean, it's a glorious passage as to how it demonstrates that. We can't get into all that right now, but that's what he's talking about. And it all is intended to point to the glory of Christ. The church is for the glory of God. You see that in verse 21 of chapter 3. In verses four, chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, he's talking about how the church, which is the body of Christ, that's the metaphor he's using here, a body, physical body. That's what we're talking about, right? Jesus is the head, we're the body. That's the metaphor. The, the, how this church, how this body is going to grow and be built up to the glory of God, how it's going to demonstrate, demonstrate uh, the wisdom of God. He, said, he talked a little bit about that in chapter 3. He's continuing that in chapter 4. How is the body of Christ built up? And just so you can see this, look at verse 12. We're talking about building up the body of Christ. That's what he's talking about. Verse 16, when each part of the body is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're talking about building up the body. Another way of saying each member is collectively growing and looking more like Jesus. Look at verse 13. They're growing up 
into mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Look at verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So how is it that we are growing, maturing into Christ-likeness? Which, by the way, that sounds an awful lot like what we just talked about in discipling. So this passage does not use the word explicitly discipling. But is that not what it's talking about? It is. Okay, now, that's what it's talking about. How does God design this to work? Is it just the job of the pastors? Well, look at verse 11. Um, pastors are a gift. Now listen, I know that sounds super sketchy coming from a pastor. You're like, yeah, you would say that you're a gift, right? Um, well, I mean, Jesus said it, so don't get mad at me. Um, now, he also does talk about how each member of the body is a gift. I think he, I think he points that out. He talks about the gifts that he gives. This passage is talking about the gifts Jesus gives for the building of his body, okay? And look at verse 11. He gave, that's the gift idea, that's, that's grace giving. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. The he is Jesus here. He's the one giving. And what, do all, what does this list have in common? There's some things that are distinct among these members of the list, but there's some things that are in common. And I think what we see is essentially some form of leading the church, right? Leadership going on within the church, um, if, uh, upfront role. Apostles, prophets, and I would, I would, think evangelists fall into this, but I could be persuaded differently. Um, I think those offices have ceased. I'm not saying we don't have evangelists, um, so that's why I could be persuaded otherwise, because we do have people who evangelize. Um, but uh, definitely with apostles and prophets, those offices have ceased. Why? Well, Ephesians 2.20 says, because the foundation of the church was laid by the apostles and the prophets. Why, why is that? Well, what do the apostles and prophets give us? Authoritative word of God, which is What? The Bible. The Bible is complete. So Ephesians 2.20 is telling us, with, with the, when we come to this completion, when we're done with these apostles and prophets, which historically we know, I mean, there's no, none of these apostles are still alive, right? So it's complete. The foundation is laid. Okay, so I just point that out so you don't get confused about that. What I really want to focus on is the shepherds and teachers. The word shepherd is the word we often say, pastor, that's the word shepherd in the Bible. So we talk about, you know, pastors, elders, overseers, all three, same office, same role, different focuses. When we say pastor, what we're referring to is the biblical word that you see translated as shepherd. That's what a pastor is. They're a shepherd, one of their roles. Now, he says here that they, um, and they're connected. The word shepherd and teacher are connected grammatically in a way that's unique from the way the other words were laid out there. This is not really that important, but I do think the connection here just shows that the shepherds and teachers, uh, pastors, are what they're doing is they're teaching. I think that's one of the main things we see that they're doing, okay? So um, I, I think that's kind of what he's getting at there. So he gives, uh, he gives again, because pastors are a gift. I'm going to say that as many times as I can, right? Pastors are a gift. He, he gives the pastors for this purpose of teaching. Um, now, they're not the only teachers. I do think we can say we have not all teachers are pastors. All pastors need to be able to teach. We do have gifted teachers who are not necessarily called to the role of pastor, and that's good for the body in Christ as well. We benefit. We as church have benefited from men who teach, right? And women who teach women's Bible studies. But here we're talking about pastor teachers. And so uh, what's the design? Is it just pastors? Because you might be thinking, well, this doesn't seem like it's proving your point. You're talking about pastors an awful lot. Well, look at verse 12 and, and 11 and 12 and see the connection. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. What are the shepherds and teachers to do? To equip the saints. And what are the saints to do? For the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The pastor's job is to equip the saints. To equip the saints. Equipping is the idea of outfitting for service. Kind of like if you're going whitewater rafting, 
right? They outfit you for that trip, right? They give you what you need for the trip. They give you some instruction. Um, sometimes they try to throw you out of the boat, right? Hopefully pastors aren't doing that, but you get the point. They're, 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 that's kind of what we mean by outfitting. They're outfitting you to do the work that needs to be done. Uh, so the pastor's role is to equip the members of the church by teaching them, uh, and as we see in other places, modeling Christ-like character. That's another form of teaching is modeling. Christians then are equipped to do the work of the ministry. And we see that work of the ministry in the following verses as we keep reading. They're to do the work of the ministry, which is to build up the body and its individual members into Christ-like maturity. So there's a chain here. You have pastors equipping, you have members being equipped, and then they're equipped for something. They're not just equipped for themselves. They're equipped to do the work of the ministry, which results in the building up of the body and the maturing of Christians within the body, not just their own maturing the maturing of the body. I'm not saying their own maturing doesn't matter. It certainly does, but they're, they're equipped to help others. Um, so verse 15, we see that it is the church, we, the church, who speak the truth in love. That's the content and the, and the motive, truth in love, so that we grow up into Christ's likeness. Look at verse 16, the second part of verse 16. When each part, so it's not just pastors, each part of the body, right? Each member is working properly. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, think about what this means in practice. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple applications here. One, every Christian should be under the shepherding ministry of pastors in a local church. Again, that might sound self-serving, but I'm saying it because the Bible says it much more clearly in other places. I think it's implied here. Um, I say this for your own good. It's not just occasionally showing up. Um, Now, I understand some people are providentially hindered from showing up. That's different. What I'm saying is Christians, if they are able to, they ought to be in part of a local church where they are being shepherded by pastors who are teaching them the word of God, who are equipping them. We, we ought not ignore that because why? It's a gift that Christ has given the church. We'd be foolish to ignore that gift. You know, th- thanks for giving me that gift. I don't really need it. I'm good. Really? No. Now, some of us are providentially hindered. I understand that. But we don't want to be like someone who signs up for a sports team thinking we don't have to show up for practices and games. That's not the way it's going to work. Or someone who thinks, well, listen, I'm part of the universal team. I'm universal football, universal basketball. So I just I go to whatever team I want to, whatever Sunday I want to. Um, that doesn't work, does it? And why doesn't it work? Because you live in a particular time and place. And in keeping with that illustration of the sports team, would you be able to ever figure out any system, right? I mean, everybody's got the same goal in basketball or football, right? It's not like the goal changes. So you might say, well, yeah, I mean, so Jesus is the shepherd and the goal doesn't change. between. Well, that's true. But if you keep jumping from church to church, team to team, you go to practice to practice, are you ever going to learn that one system where it's designed to build piece upon piece upon piece to help you get better and better? No, you're not. So there's a call to be part of a local church. Okay, the second thing is each disciple, each disciple of Jesus is not a spectator in the life of the church. Martin Lloyd-Jones correctly observed this. A fatal tendency of many in the church is to think of it just as a building to which they come, they sit, they listen to sermons and addresses, and in which they do nothing. Uh, as, as, now again, providentially, we can be hindered. That doesn't mean you're doing nothing, right? You can be praying. That's not doing nothing. You may not be able to get out of your house, but you can pray. Or maybe you're even in a comatose. Well, you know what? You're showing the glory of God by the fact that he is sustaining you and the church family is loving you, okay? If you're in this room right now, you're probably not in that category, okay? Just to be clear. Um, so it's not like we tend to... We are students. We are to learn. But the church is not just a classroom. That's what I'm trying to say. Think about it. In a classroom, in a college class, you can show up and learn all the material and be successful even if 
all the other students around you are failing. Right? You could. I mean, they might say you're heartless, but you could do that and be successful. It doesn't work that way in the church. It's not because the church is the body of Christ. If one member is not doing well, the whole body cares about that. You stub your toe, the rest of your body is responding to that, right? You're not just kind of like, whatever, get over it. Just keep walking, right? You're like limping, you're like holding it, you're crying, you're whatever. So one application is to ask God to give you this mindset that I'm not just a spectator. I, yes, I do come to be built up. Don't come thinking like you're God's gift to everyone. Okay, I just said that about pastors, but that you're God's gift to everyone in the sense that you're all, I, I am the Messiah, right? I will fix all your problems. That's not true. That's not who you are. But you are a functioning part of the body. So come thinking not just I need to be built up. Yes, you need to be built up. Yes, come to church to be built up. Listen to the sermons. Don't listen for other people. Listen for you, right? Be built up. And then turn around and minister to other people in the body. I'm not just a spectator. I'm not even simply a student. I am responsible to be equipped and then to disciple others. This gives every believer meaningful ministry within the church. If you come with this mindset, you don't have to always be asking, what can I do in the church? Because when you show up on Sunday morning, right, when you invite people over to your house, when you show up to a prayer meeting, when you're in a small group Bible study, you always have some role of building up the body, seeking to mature those around you as you yourself grow in maturity, seeking to learn from those who are more mature than you. You have a role to play. And so we ought to engage in that work. Well, as the church engages in this, we see a lot of different fruits coming out of it. And um, we will um, spend some time looking at those different pieces of fruit later. Um, in this passage, I'm just going to point them out to you, and then hopefully we'll be able to come back to them next week. Verse 13, the beginning of it, it talks about unity. This until we attain is talking about some of the outcomes of this ministry that's happening in the church, some of the results. And the first thing is unity. Unity around the faith, unity around the knowledge of the Son of God. The, the second thing is maturity. Um, until Verse 13, uh, the second half of that, until we attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, seeing each member maturing. Um, that's, that's our goal. And by the way, that is the greatest protection to being tossed around by the world's discipleship. It's, it has its own discipleship. This is especially important for new believers. I think you see that in the next verses, so that you won't be tossed around like a ship, like a little sailboat. The goal is you have safe harbor to become a big cruise boat. And now you can, you can, you can go out there and you can face more of those winds. But is, that, is it just for, the, for, un, for new believers? No, because look what he says down in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are, all of us, to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Are you fully looking like Christ? Be honest. No, you're not, right? So does this still apply to you that you need to be maturing? Yes, right? So it's not just the new believer. It's, it's really all of us are maturing. That's the effects that we see from every member engaging in this type of work. I guess what I'm saying is think about how healthy the church is when every member engages in this work. And I think by God's grace, we have, we have a lot of that. I think we can, by God's grace, excel more in that. So as we draw to a close, two main takeaways that we see from this time in the Word. Number one, your own discipleship matters. Um, it's not just liking the idea of Jesus. It is you need to be growing in your own walk with the Lord. You need His Word. You need fellow Christians. We have to learn to follow His way. Yes, you will stumble. We're not talking about perfection. But you get back up by God's grace, and only because of God's grace, and you grow, right? 
So you need to keep growing. Second, your own discipleship is not an end in of itself. Uh, it is part, part of disciple, being a disciple means to engage in making disciples. You have meaningful and important work to do in the body. Seek to build others up. Um, make that God's prayer. That's why I make that your prayer to God is God, help me fill the role you have given me. Help me think about how to minister to other people. Help the pastors to equip us, but help, help me and other members in our body to do this work and to pr- press on and to do it more and more. That, that was the takeaway, I would say, from today. Next week, we'll pick back up and look more, Lord willing, at this topic. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we do pray for your help, that we'd engage in this work well, to your glory, and for our good, that we might be built up, and, and for the good of our community, that we might be um, disciples of Christ, shining as, and showing what it looks like to follow after the one and only Savior, the one who's worthy of all glory, and who all our hope rests on. We pray this in his name. Amen.